0: So, we started reading through Jude two weeks ago on a Sunday night, and, um, and I was sharing some of Jude's uh, sc- uh, scholarly abilities, right? Jude had this knack, he was apparently pretty well versed in Jewish literature and Jewish history, and he had this knack for pulling in a lot of good references and things from the history, both biblical history and just from Jewish legends and Jewish history, To help make his points. Uh, And last week we focused in quite a lot on what were these uh, Old Testament or Jewish literature warnings that that Jude was using to to warn against the current problem generation and all that. And so two weeks ago we called uh, the lesson, Jude, um, fire and false teachers. Well tonight... We're going to take a little bit of a different angle on Jude, what I think is really the heart of the message, even though you have to get through the fire and false teachers to get there, which is faith and forgiveness. So tonight is Jude, faith, and forgiveness, and I think these things really mesh pretty well, and I'm excited for us to read it and open it up together. So um, if you're at Jude, we'll be there in just a second. We're going to have a word of prayer, and I want to mention that we have a mission team on the ground in Haiti right now, so we're going to pray for them. And then I thought we would do something a little different with our prayer here, uh, if you will try this out with me or, or tolerate this. Uh, when we sang, Come Thou Almighty King, just a few minutes ago, I was sitting there listening to us all singing it and to the words that, that Garrett was leading us in, and it's been a long time since I've sung that particular hymn, and I thought, wow, this is a wonderful prayer. And so I'm going to finish my prayer by reading these lyrics, but I'm going I'm to try to say them maybe in kind of modern lingo. not not get too, I'm not going to just read them, I'm going to try to pray it, and so we'll pray that as the conclusion of our prayer. Okay, so let's bow together and let's pray for our mission team also. Uh, Lord, we thank you, first of all, that you brought us together tonight and that we can read from this book of Jude uh, that you've prepared through the Holy Spirit to serve the church throughout the generations, and we're grateful for the messages in it, and we pray that when we leave here tonight that some of that will be in our heart and that it will be ready to come back out of our heart and to be on our lips at the moment that we need to call upon it uh, for good teaching in the church or to help us in a moment of critical decision making or to give encouragement or to give uh, some type of um, corrective criticism to to those who need it so that the church can be strengthened and edified and glorify you in this generation and in the generations to come and we pray that you would bless our brothers and sisters in Haiti Uh, The ones that have gone out from us and are on the ground there right now, we pray that you would protect them and that you'd multiply their efforts and make their ministry produce far more results than they could have imagined. We pray that you would do this for your own glory and for the sake of your name. And we also pray that you would bless the church in Haiti, help it to grow and to multiply, let the disciples there uh, become even more and more as they serve you, as they use the gift of the Spirit that you have put inside of them that you have awoken inside of the people of Haiti as they have come to Christ and as they have been uh, renewed and reborn through the washing of baptism and as they have shared in the same disciplines that we share in of confession and repentance and of meeting together uh, for accountability at church and of meeting together for worship in the church. God, we pray that you would multiply your church in Haiti. And Father, we offer you these words uh, that were written so long ago. Come, Almighty King, help us to sing your name and help us to praise. Father, you are all glorious and you're victorious over all. Come and reign over us. You are the Ancient of Days. Come, incarnate Word, put on your sword and attend to our prayers. Come and bless your people and give your Word success. Spirit of holiness descend over us. O Lord our God, to you the highest praises will always be, now and forevermore. May we, in glory in heaven, see your sovereign majesty, and throughout eternity love and adore you, God. In the name of Jesus we pray, and all who agree say, Amen. Man, what a beautiful hymn. Okay, so the book of Jude. Let me get opened up there with you. And we'll get started. Okay, so last, two weeks ago, I keep saying last week because that's what I'm used to doing on Sunday mornings. Two weeks ago, the last Sunday night, uh, time that we were together here. As I mentioned, we really focused in on the middle of the book. And so um, I was sharing with you uh, what I think were some of Jude's reasons for going back to the Old Testament and the old stories and bringing those forward into his present time. And the reason he was doing that was to show that the types of decisions and reasoning and choices that were being made in the churches that he was writing to had proven themselves in past history to not work out. These things did not produce the life that God desired, and they didn't produce what was needed in the church. And so he continues to dip into the past, into this rich Uh, Abundant history and tradition of stories that the Jews had in order to bring ladles full into the present of refreshing spiritual water, something that they could drink in and that they could uh, learn from and they could remember uh, that that the church has to have uh, some, well, on the one hand, some integrity and honor for the commands of God where we take his commands seriously and on the other hand, an appreciation for the Lordship of Jesus. So tonight, uh, I'm hoping that by the time we're done, that you'll understand what he wanted the people in this church to do about it and what he wants us to do about it when the same things happen in our modern age. Uh, Because, as I mentioned two weeks ago, the heading on my digital book of Jude, the, the, the book of Jude in my digital Bible, says this. In this book, Jude gave a brief but fiery expose of heretics. So this book is famous for its hellfire and brimstone flavor. And sometimes it's been avoided, probably many times it's been avoided in preaching and teaching because it seems so condemning. And that's not very popular now to read these types of passages. But my premise, and what I think you're going to find as you learn to enjoy this book even more, is that this book really is not a condemnation, it is an encouragement to the church to stand for truth, to know when to condemn and what to condemn. But the instructions the church is left with are very um, encouraging. They're focused on building up faith in the community and enriching the community of God, which is what most of these New Testament books do for us. And so uh, take a look again with me at the first few verses of the book. Just to make sure that we're all putting roots down in the same place so that we can finish uh, at the same pace. So verse 3 here in the book of Jude. Chapter only, verse 3. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith. And this is the theme he's going to come back to at the very end of the book. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith is one of the instructions we'll see before we're done tonight. Contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. And the emphasis here on his people being holy because the decisions being made are unholy. And the type of teaching that's being promulgated is immoral and unholy. So when I grew up and I heard the word heretics, I don't know if I had the the right understanding or the wrong understanding of the word, but this is what I pictured. I thought of heretics uh, as essentially a false teacher, and I usually associated it with the types of teachings that we think of as how do you do worship appropriately or the right way. So maybe a heretic is someone that teaches the wrong types of things to do on Sunday morning or doesn't have the right appreciation for the things that the Lord instituted for baptism or the Lord's Supper and that that would be what heresy is, is someone who doesn't teach those things the right way. And so I really struggled reading the book of Jude the first few times that I studied it seriously because I was looking for evidence of that type of heresy here. And what I found the more I studied this book was that there's heresy in this book, there's false teaching, but it doesn't have so much to do with what we would call ecclesiology. And ecclesiology is a big word that really just means the practices of the church. The things that we do on Sunday morning or Sunday night or Wednesday night. Uh, The the things that we feel like are the proper and orderly worship. That's not the kind of heresy that is engaged in this book. The kind of heresy that's engaged in this book is twofold. It's two types of heresy. The one, as you're about to see, is immorality. And really, it ties into what we talked about this morning. It's cheap grace. The other type is denying Jesus' lordship, which... We purposefully also talked about this morning because that is also cheap grace. And so I'm hoping that as we move forward here that you'll be connecting things from this morning and things from tonight. So read the next couple of verses with me. Again, verse four. Certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are, and this is the first accusation about immorality, they are ungodly people. And this word in the Greek usually represents people that are immoral. So it doesn't necessarily mean they don't believe in any gods. It means they live as if there wasn't a God. Their choices reflect that they don't honor and respect God. So they're immoral, ungodly people. And then look at this phrase. This almost sounds like it came right out of this morning's sermon. Who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. And isn't this what we talked about this morning in our assemblies? About uh, Romans chapter 6 and Galatians chapter 5 and Jesus' teachings about the cost of discipleship. And how often, both in the ancient world and the modern, it is tempting, so tempting, to say, well, I'm saved, and so I'm not really that motivated to try so much harder to eradicate sin from my life, because God's got this. And so I'm not really going to put in the full effort to become a mature Christian, because I'll just fall back on His grace. At least He'll let me into heaven. At least He'll let me into heaven. Should not be the mantra of the church. At least he'll let me into heaven isn't what we should really, like, get proud and excited about. At least he lets me into heaven is mercy, that's grace. But at most, he wants to fill the body of his church in the world today with rich, meaningful life through the Spirit. And that starts with these two things. One, it starts with learning to live a godly life, a moral life. And that's a hard thing to do. And the second thing is that it means always coming back to who Jesus is. That Jesus isn't just Savior, but he's Lord. Look at the last part of uh, verse 4. So they pervert the grace of God into immorality, a license for immorality. And, this is the second accusation, they deny Jesus Christ. And then what Jude decides to emphasize about Jesus is, isn't that he's our Savior, isn't that he is our, you know, merciful Redeemer, although those are appropriate titles. What he emphasizes or underlines is that Jesus Christ is our Sovereign and our Lord. Because just like we were talking about this morning, the way this works is we start accepting Jesus as Savior, but not wanting him as Lord and where that leads is then us deciding his commands about moral living, his teachings about morality aren't really as important because I'm not invested in his lordship, I just want his salvation. And so often uh, you may hear something like this said in our, in our brotherhood of churches about someone who has never matured in the Lord. They, they came to church for a while and then they've left and we, you, know, you haven't seen him for years and someone will say at least they were baptized. Right, at least they were baptized. And I just want to encourage us to think and hope for a little deeper and a little more than that about what Christian discipleship should look like. So these two things, like at least, you know, maybe at least he'll let me into heaven and at least they were baptized. These are just the portals or the entryways into the life that Jesus is calling us to, into discipleship. And so we're hoping here that these two things will help us. On the one hand, knowing that one of the problems that the world will always have is it the world, and the part of us that still is attached to the world, the part of us that longs to fulfill our own desires instead of be formed to God's pattern, is always going to say, ah, "He's got enough grace for this. He's got enough grace for me. I'm kind of done trying. I'm done trying on this front. And on the other hand, uh, I want him to be my savior, and I'll work on him being my Lord." And that's just not really good enough. That's not where we want to be. We want to accept him as Lord and Savior and take on his pattern of living. Okay, now here's what we're going to do next. We're going to skip the whole middle of the book because we read most of it two weeks ago. And so you're going to get to go down near the end of the book, which um, also is good because that means I won't make too many points out of the middle of the book. We'll just hit the ones at the end here. Here's, Here's what I want you to be looking for, though. Because we identified these two problems from the beginning. All the stuff in the middle that substantiates it, that gives evidence from the past, that gives this cool, refreshing, spiritual drink to help make it new and meaningful in the present, all of that is good, but we want to look for the instructions that were for the church. What was Jude, Judas or Judah, however you decide to say his name, what was he looking for in the response of the churches that he was writing to? What was he hoping that Christians would do? And so we're going to be down here in just a minute in verse 20 that's where he addresses them again he actually addresses them in verse 17 but it's really still a warning so verse 20 is where we're going okay so as we're preparing to read verse 20 I want you to to think about this with me I want you to um, try to imagine or think of a scenario to answer this question what is something that you can think of Uh, maybe a historical event that happened in your lifetime Maybe one that you've learned about and researched. Maybe something even that's uh, for more recent in your life. Uh, But think of a scenario in which there was something really corrupt and terrible going on. But people were in such great denial that there was anything bad going on. That there was anything corrupt going on. That there was a problem that it continued to grow and to grow, largely ignored or largely covered up, even though there was some evidence for it, there were some witnesses to the problem, because people generally don't like to get into the mess. It's easier to say, eh, it can't really be as bad as the reports say it is. Can you think of a scenario like that? Something that was so bad and people refused to believe the reports, eh, ah, it can't be that bad, and then it was proven to be worse than anyone's worst nightmare. I'll give you a second to think. Who's got one? A holocaust. Good. That's the one you were thinking of? Did I paint the picture so specifically that that's the only one we can think about? That's the one in my notes. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, um, so I'm preparing to, you know, to teach on Jude and I'm reading in some of the commentaries that I have and I came across what I thought was the perfect uh, scenario or the perfect picture from a New Testament scholar of what is happening here in the book of Jude when people are saying it's not a big problem there's something going on in the church this whole time as this secret teaching that's slipped in among them has been growing where people are refusing to confront it And, and they must be saying it's not as it can't be as bad this whole, this whole cheap grace thing that the new teachers are preaching, it can't be that bad. We don't want to come across looking like a bunch of meanies, like a bunch of hellfire and brimstone preachers. We don't want to be the judgmental church. You know, we don't want to be the legalistic church, so it can't be that bad. Let's just kind of not speak out too loud against it. Uh, and, and on the one hand, in the ancient world and in the modern, what you see then is you see the cheap grace continuing to grow and grow, where people think, I can just have God's salvation and not be transformed by him. And on the other hand you see Jesus uh, as Lord kind of sinking to where people say well he's just a good teacher. He is one of many ways to get to heaven. He's one of many ways to find enlightenment or one of many ways to be saved. He's a good choice for you but don't push him on everyone. He's, He's one of some good choices that you could make but don't push him on everyone. Well What we're really talking about in these two problems that get ignored and that people refuse to believe are as bad as they could sound that they are uh, are these two, again, kind of big words that really just mean simple concepts. And it's important that we talk about them and that we kind of hash them out a little. So the one in which immorality grows because people refuse to believe that cheap grace could cause that much of a scandal or that much of a problem is called syncretism syncretism is a big word for a small concept and this is the concept it's when the church starts to look like the world and doesn't care when the church starts to adopt the principles of the world and believe that these principles because they're the reigning principles in our mindset in our worldview, in our society that they're good enough for the church and we blend the two together and we stop caring that's called syncretism okay the other big word The one that means Jesus is just one teacher among many. Jesus is one option among many. is called pluralism. And pluralism, again, it's a big word for a small concept. It simply means that somebody regards all of the faith options as equal. They're all equal. None of them is to be preferred above another. None of them is better than another. None of them should be pushed or taught over another. And so this is what's happening in Jude's church. And this is what we sometimes see today. And what I want you to think about or or to see in the example of the Holocaust is that it can be convenient at times for us because we don't want to be this hard-nosed, brow-beating, judgmental church to get so into talking about grace that we forget that grace only works in a system in which it is tied through the tether of love to the practices of discipleship. Grace only can transform us if it turns us into a person who is willing to obey Jesus Christ. It can't help us if we refuse, obstinately refuse, to have the tether of love that turns into obedience and discipleship. It can't do that. And in the same way, as long as Western nations during the Holocaust were stubbornly and obstinately declaring that the reports coming out of Germany could not be that bad, what we saw was the concentration camps continued to grow. The number of deaths continued to grow. The people groups persecuted continued to grow. And by the time soldiers arrived to liberate those camps, there was unfaith. There was a lack of faith. There was disbelief at what they saw before them because they hadn't believed that these problems could be real and they hadn't yet seen them encountered head on and this is kind of what we once in a while uncover is this nasty sore within culture too is that we sometimes have disbelief towards Jesus even as the church we have unbelief we have a lack of faith he told us you allow grace to become too cheap too cheapened and it's not got discipleship anymore and what will happen is you won't have counted the costs and immorality will crop up and and you'll have a license for it because you've got a great prepared message of grace but nothing to do about the sin and then just like I mentioned this morning we have to hold both hands equally here we've got to have love and and forgiveness and mercy as well as preaching the truth because you don't want to become a legalistic church and so the answer to this has always been in Jesus's plan that the two things are tethered together that we have faith and we believe when God says there is a bad report coming from the front. There is a bad report that sin is growing, that death is reigning, that in the world and in the mindset of the world where syncretism and pluralism reign, death and, and, and decay are overcoming and they're winning. And the only cure, the only medicine is to advance with faith forward into that fray and to declare the two things that can solve it, the two salves that can heal it are to believe in the exclusivity of Jesus, that he is the one way. It's not pluralism, it's Jesus. And to believe that he's given us a form of living called godliness or discipleship that is the one way. Not syncretism. Okay. I'll get off the soapbox here. Verse 20. Here are the things he tells the church to do. Very clearly he gives them several points. And he says, do these things because of the problems that I've just outlined for you. Verse 20. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith. That's the first one. By building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Church. What do we do about the problem of cheap grace and of whenever this happens that we accept Jesus as Savior but not as Lord? What do we do about syncretism and pluralism? How do we combat it in the world? Do we stand up here and start pounding pulpits again and just saying over and over and over, uh, you know, like it's an echo chamber, how wrong the world is for the choices they're making? Is that going to solve the problem? No. No. The way we begin to solve the problem is by building the church up in our most holy faith. We have to believe Jesus that there is a problem. We have to believe that Jesus is the answer. And we have to build ourselves up in that faith. The faith of holiness, which means godly living, which means godliness. We make the choice to follow Jesus even closer. We make the choice to imitate him even more accurately. And in doing so, we take the first step towards combating syncretism and pluralism. Look at the second thing, also in verse 20. And praying in the Holy Spirit. The second thing he instructs them to do is one of the most ancient Judeo-Christian traditions. This goes all the way back to the beginning. Where we simply call on God for his help in combating the problem. One of the worst things that can happen in the battle against syncretism and pluralism in the world is when the church stops praying for God to solve the problem and we start thinking that we can just use our minds to solve the problem when we start thinking that we can logic and reason with people and with the world's way of doing things and solve syncretism and pluralism, the only thing that we know how to come up with is legislation. We come up with rules. We'll say, go this far and no farther. How successful is legislation in creating a copy of Jesus? How successful are rules in helping people to love the Lord? Not very successful. And so what we do is is not just preach rules to people, which is legalism, but we build ourselves up in holy faith, ready to imitate him, and then we pray in the Holy Spirit for God to move. For God to pour out a revival, for God to pour out the spirit of holiness, which means godliness and moral living. We pray for him to answer in the most sacred and ancient way that people have ever interacted with God. Please come to our rescue. And we read to him whatever words we can from the hymn book or the ones that come from our hearts. And we trust the spirit to groan and intercede with the words that we can't express and to communicate them to God what do we need in this time of syncretism and pluralism verse 21 keep yourselves in God's love so the third thing he says to the Christians and I don't think that this list is meant to be an extensive uh, exhaustive list of all the things that a Christian can do but it is a well rounded list it is a good spiritual list keep yourselves in God's love So you're building yourself up in holy faith. You're learning to be a disciple and imitator of Jesus. You're praying in the Holy Spirit that God will answer the problems of syncretism and pluralism in the world. And you are keeping yourself in his love. You're not creating more work for God by making him chase you around. You are keeping yourself in his love. We should ask, how is this accomplished? Because this sounds very much like a human work if it gets framed the wrong way. You are able to keep yourself from falling, you are able to keep yourself unstumbling. How do you keep yourself in God's love? Well, the answer comes just a little while later in the book, in verse 24, in what we call the doxology, the praise. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. We keep ourselves in his love by trusting him to keep us unstumbling. This Greek word in verse 24 is fascinating because it often gets translated in the English as a negative. Just like the version I'm reading from. He is able to keep you from stumbling or from falling. The word in the Greek actually says, he will maintain you unstumbling. I think that's beautiful. He will maintain your walk unstumbling. You won't trip, you won't stub a toe. He is able to keep you unstumbling. So keep yourselves in God's love. He'll actually do the work. As you wait, and here's the fourth part, for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. So you're waiting, you're being kept in God's love, you're praying fervently in the Spirit, and you're building yourself up in holy faith. It all could sound a little bit passive if you don't believe that God is actively working through the prayers and the holiness of the church and the love of the church. But if you do believe that God works through these things, through these upside-down things, Ways of waging war. How can God wage war on sin through love and through people who just pray and keep themselves in God's way? Oh, that guy on the cross who kept himself in love and in prayer and in imitating God's way and didn't lift a hand to resist but trusted God to act through the holiness of his faith and his prayers and his love. That's our image to copy, isn't it? He has a pastoral instruction for the church as well. Those four things I just gave you in verse 20 and 21 could be called uh, discipleship steps. They are four things you can actually do, work on, and pray for as you journey into and through discipleship. But these last things in verse 22 and 23 are more pastorally minded. This is what we do for others in God's name and in His behalf. Verse 23 says, Be merciful to those who doubt. And so often when we are facing a world with syncretism and pluralism, where the world and the church are becoming to look more like each other, and where people in the world and in the church honor Jesus as Lord less and less, and think that there's many ways to heaven. When we're facing those two problems... It is so hard for us to show mercy to the people that doubt. Because oftentimes syncretism and pluralism fill us with fear. We're afraid of what will happen to our heritage if syncretism and pluralism reign. We're afraid of what will happen to the church and to God's name in the world if the ways of the world keep winning through syncretism and pluralism over the simple faith that we have. We become afraid and then we get aggressive. And instead of building ourselves up in hope, being fervent in prayer and constant in love and being kept by God, instead of doing those things, we take the attack to them, don't we? And so that's where the pulpit pounding starts and the angry yelling and the voice raised instead of the reasoning through the Spirit with people. And what happens is when we have someone in our own number who doubts, They don't really think that the syncretism problem is that bad. They're not convinced yet that Jesus is the only way. We're not always prepared to show mercy to them. And we must be. We must be ready to show mercy to our spouses, to our children, to our grandchildren when they doubt. When they're not ready to accept the message that we know we have in Jesus Christ. If we don't show mercy, we won't be able to snatch them from the fire. The next instruction in 23 says, save others by snatching them from the fire. And I think you get a picture here that there are several stages that are progressively Worse as the person, the object whom we're trying to care for, is further and further into the world of syncretism and pluralism, of blending the ways of God and world. Because on the first step, it's they're doubting and we're showing mercy. And the second step is we're saving them from snatching them from the fire. They're so close, their eyebrows are singed and gone, right? And we're snatching them back away. Incidentally, if any of you have ever singed your eyebrows off on a gas stove, you will show mercy to those who doubt. (laughs) And so you see them getting closer to the flames and you snatch them back, still showing mercy. And look at the third. This seems to be where they're so far into this worldly way of living. They're so consumed with believing that the world and the church can really blend and work that way that Jesus is one way of many, they're so far into that, that there is a danger that they'll influence the rest of the church, or that they'll influence you. And so he says as the third pastoral instruction to others, show mercy, but mixed with fear. And so be cautious as you show mercy, because they're so far into the system that they might drag you down. He says, hate even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh, by which I believe he means to say... Be careful that it doesn't rub off. Be careful that you don't go so far down the road of showing mercy to them that you become like them. Yes, Paul said to the Jews we become like Jews and the Greeks we become like Greeks so that we can save all of them. Yes, Jesus Jesus modeled an incarnation when he came to earth. Jesus became one of us to reach us. Those are true teachings, but sometimes they get used to encourage a type of ministry in which we go a little too far to try to be like them, to show them Jesus. And what we're instructed to do to show people Jesus is build ourselves up in our holy faith and pray earnestly in the Holy Spirit and be kept in God's love. I don't know how specific I want to be about this, but I'm going to try to be a little bit more specific because I think it's important that you understand this point of what I'm trying to say about clothing stained by corrupted flesh. It's so easy for the church, for all of us who don't want to be the gavel-banging, hellfire-and-brimstone church anymore. We don't want to be the ones that are called legalists anymore anymore that we soften our teaching and our preaching to the point where people think their sin is really okay and we don't mind. And that Jesus doesn't mind. And that Jesus doesn't have a better life for them. That he doesn't care. And maybe in doing that and teaching that long enough, we start to think it's kind of okay for me to be that way too because his grace is sufficient for me. I'm not going to fight this desire anymore. And all of a sudden, the people we've been trying to reach become... The problem that's rubbing off on us, the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. And so he says, be careful, show mercy to the doubters, snatch others from the fire, and to some, continue to show mercy, but mix it with fear. And be careful that you don't go too far down that road as you try to evangelize and you try to reach out. Keep yourself church." in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. And this praise, Jude ends the book, as Christians always ought, coming back around to the God who does it all and gets credit for it all and is the author and inventor of it all, to him who is able to keep you unstumbling and present you before his glorious presence without fault. And with great joy, Because this will be a joyful mission. It will be a joyful discipleship. To the only God our Savior. Be glory, majesty, power, and authority. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Before all ages, now, and forevermore. Amen. Amen church. Amen. If there's anything that you need to respond to tonight. We'll be here to receive you and to pray with you. We'll have the Lord's Supper prepared in just a few minutes in the other room. And we hope that you'll take that if you need to. Share with us anything you need to share. We love you. I love you. Jenna and I love all of you. And we're so glad to be here in this body, building ourselves up in holy faith together. Let's stand and sing our song of invitation.